Hi everyone, um, and thanks for listening to our uh, atrial fibrillation uh, knowledge video. So just a very quick preface to this. This is the knowledge of what you would need to know, uh, everything you need to know about AF and more uh, for your um, specialty interviews. And for those listening on the podcast, uh, there will be some images shown. So please do take the opportunity to log on to the website to watch the videos to have a look at some of the ECGs and images shown. Um, we have obviously purposely made these uh, podcasts and videos more detailed than, than you absolutely need for the interviews, but we'll be peppering it with uh, five out of five, five out of five tips uh, that will get you those top, top marks in interviews. Um, so I'm Barrett Cayley, and this is my colleague. Hi, I'm Rahul. And uh, let's get started. Okay. Thanks, Balric. Uh, so the first thing we'll talk about just to set the scene is the definition of atrial fibrillation, which is uncoordinated and ineffective atrial contraction. Uh, it's diagnosed on either a single 12 lead ECG or on a single lead ECG trace showing atrial fibrillation for at least 30 seconds. Now, what are those ECG characteristics? There's, there's two elements specifically, uh, an irregularly irregular RR interval, and also the absence of distinguishable repeating P waves. So that's the definition and diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Uh, moving on now to the epidemiology and risk factors of atrial fibrillation, there is a global adult prevalence of around 2 to 4%. Um, Risk factors for atrial fibrillation include increased age, um, sex, so male ethnic, uh, uh, sex, gender is more associated, uh, ethnicity, it's typically more seen in Caucasians, genetics, and they are your non-modifiable risk factors, and then mo modifiable risk factors uh, include certain comorbidities, including hypertension, heart failure, valvular disease, pulmonary disease, including COPD and being a smoker, obstructive sleep apnea, alcohol. And these reversible risk factors are very relevant as part of the holistic management um, is looking to optimize these conditions in people with atrial fibrillation. Moving on from the epidemiology and risk factors, the next thing we will talk about is the classification of atrial fibrillation. And this is based essentially on the length of time someone's in atrial fibrillation and their ability to get back into sinus rhythm. So the first subtype is uh, defined as paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And this is atrial fibrillation that terminates spontaneously or with intervention within seven days of onset. Persistent atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation that terminates spontaneously or with intervention beyond seven days of onset. And a kind of further subclassification of persistent is long-standing persistent, which uh, is essentially atrial fibrillation lasting greater than 12 months when deciding to adapt a strategy of rhythm control. So trying to get someone back into sinus rhythm. And finally, uh, permanent atrial fibrillation, which is essentially an acceptance of atrial fibrillation as a therapeutic attitude by the physician and the patient. Now, we will later talk in more detail about the clinical presentation of atrial fibrillation, but a couple of points to mention before that relating to prognosis. Asymptomatic individuals generally have less favorable outcomes and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation 
tends to have more symptoms. And thinking about prognosis, the significance of atrial fibrillation uh, for patients really is principally an increased risk of stroke. So 20 to 30% of patients with ischemic stroke have atrial fibrillation. It is also associated with a reduced quality of life and an increased risk of death, around 1.5 to 3 point times higher increased risk of death compared to those without atrial fibrillation. Now, before going on to discuss the investigations of management, one point to mention is that when thinking about atrial fibrillation, the ESC suggests describing it using the four S's. And this is quite a nice uh, framework because it helps us to essentially not miss things when, when we look to manage a patient with AF. Uh, and those four S's are, the first one is a stroke risk. The second one is uh, symptom severity, and this can be assessed through questionnaires, such as the European Heart and Rhythm Association Symptom Score. The third S is severity of AF burden, and this is based essentially on rhythm monitoring through devices such as a halter monitor. And the last S is substrate severity. So uh, either on echo or other imaging findings uh, that um, look at how higher risk uh, a patient is for atrial fibrillation. And we'll consider these four S's as we talk uh, further about the topic. Um, uh, so before moving on, Balric, anything to, to add to that? Um, no, I think that's, a, that's really co comprehensive. I think the <clears throat> important takeovers for AF when you're either diagnosing AF or managing a patient with AF is by classifying it in words with words that cardiologists and your, the consultants sitting across the interview from you uh, understand and appreciate. So, as you said, paroxysmal comes and goes. Persistent is the word you use if someone's had it for a long period of time, but less than a year, and long-standing persistent if they've had it for more than a year. But persistent, what that really means to lots of electrophysiologists is that we are still considering a rhythm control strategy in this patient. Uh, and then permanent means we're only really adopting or looking to go for a rate control strategy in this patient. So those important buzzwords and really uh, will really guide what, what you're thinking about the patient's uh, management in this. Um, and I think the, one of the most important things uh, for, uh, for, for AF and we're going to but over and over again is that this is a very, very common condition. Um, I think with regards to the epidemiology, if you're ever asked to explain AF to a patient and diagnosis of AF, it's incredibly common. So I think people use common, there's a common stat, isn't it? So 10 to 20% of all people over the age of 80 have AF. And I think it's about 5% of people um, between, six, uh, between 60 and 70 have AF. So it's incredibly common. So patients shouldn't be too worried when they're uh, diagnosed with AF. And then the final thing is that's getting more and more important, um, especially with regards to NICE guidelines, is some of the metabolic syndrome that actually guides your likelihood of getting AF, and then also actually guides whether patients are appropriate for certain strategies. So if you could say in an interview that, if you could say in an interview, this is either paroxysmal or persistent AF, you could say that it's uh, in a 60-something-year-old 60, 60 uh, and this patient has, um, and I'd like to know more about the patient's 
um, BMI, because that's very important when deciding about catheter ablation and what more might be needed, uh, management strategies, what more might do, be done first, and especially with regards to BMI and obstructive sleep apnea, because they're very big risk factors for AF. And NICE have recently said that for catheter ablation in patients that are particularly overweight, they need to lose weight first before they become eligible for catheter ablation, which is a really high scoring point. And most cardiologists uh, are aware of it now. So they will uh, very much appreciate if you can show off that you know that knowledge. So knowing a patient's BMI affecting the patient's management strategies is very important. Nice. And, and I think that that's a really nice point that we'll go on to further discuss in the management. Um, but, you know, really nicely links to their risk factors and epidemiology, which, which is really important um, when, when thinking about AF. Uh, so next we'll talk about investigating and working up atrial fibrillation. Um, and of all things, uh, they start with a history. Now we won't go into uh, exhaustive detail, but we'll talk about specific discriminating points in the history to, to cover. And also actually a generalized approach to palpitations, which is typically how uh, AF may come up in an interview scenario. So palpitations in itself is an unpleasant awareness of one's heartbeats. Um, and when approaching it, um, many things you can often link back using the Socrates framework um, and not all aspects may apply. But thinking about the character, you'd want to elicit whether it's a fast or slow uh, rate of palpitations, if it feels regular or irregular, uh, with irregular leaning more towards something like atrial fibrillation, if it's uh, heavy and forceful in nature, which may suggest a ventricular ectopic, or if you're having any skipped beats, again, suggesting a ventricular ectopic. Uh, then you think about the onset of symptoms, and if it's very rapid onset, uh, that may suggest something like a, an SVT, or a slower onset may suggest something more along the lines of a sinus tachycardia. Um, the frequency of a patient's symptoms is also important, uh, and this guides uh, later tests on how you try and capture the rhythm. Um, and then thinking about exacerbating and relieving factors. So, for example, if uh, they if the patient performs vagal maneuvers such as bearing down and that terminates palpitations, it might be suggestive of an SVT. Uh, if it's if they find things like alcohol and caffeine are exacerbating symptoms, that may suggest it's a sinus or, or an extra systole or atrial fibrillation. Um, if the patient is finding that they're um, exacerbated by uh, exertion, it may suggest a, a catecholamine-dependent arrhythmia or ischemic ventricular uh, tachycardia. Um, and actually, if they find that exertion reduces symptoms, that may suggest more of a benign uh, extrasystole. So those are kind of the important questions when thinking, um, when, uh, when um, asking about uh, palpitations. And then you'd also ask for associated symptoms. Um, and with atrial fibrillation, people can describe breathlessness, chest discomfort, fatigue, and presyncopal symptoms, where they may also present with symptoms of a stroke or other embolic phenomenon. Um, in the history, it's also important to think about a patient's past medical history, um, as many diseases may predispose someone to atrial fibrillation. So for example, uh, are they hyperthyroid? Uh, also, the social history is important. So do they uh, alcohol, caffeine and recreational drugs are particularly relevant um, risk factors that, that may increase someone's symptoms. Um, 
if you're seeing someone who is diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, as mentioned before, you may wish to assess their symptoms with validated uh, symptom severity scores, such as the European Heart and Rhythm Association severity score. And then an important point, as we discussed of the four S's, is think about their stroke risk. Uh, so the CHADS-VASC score is a, a risk assessment for stroke. Uh, you also need to think about their bleeding risk too. So NICE have actually recommended the ORBIT score over the HAS-BLED score, uh, suggesting it has higher accuracy. Um, so that would be important in your history. Uh, one would also examine the patient next after the history. And this would be uh, specifically more of a focused cardiorespiratory examination, uh, looking uh, in addition for complications from the atrial fibrillation, such as decompensated heart failure, but also considering uh, multi-system causes of the atrial fibrillation, uh, such as examining for thyroid status. So I'll stop there uh, for history and examination. Anything to add, Balric, uh, before we move on to further tests? Um, no, actually, not much, not much to add. Um, I think the, just put it into context, I think the AF or palpitations history, you won't get that long. So you really want to draw out just the key points. Uh, and uh, I think Rahul's mentioned uh, many of them, just draw that again. So I think it's the... Uh, frequency and nature of the arrhythmia and um, because that tells you a bit about the likely pathology i.e. sudden onset sudden onset and sudden offset is a key discriminatory question between a good candidate and a very good candidate um, and also then thinking about um, whether it's you know sometimes we ask patients to tap it out is it regular or irregularly irregular and that's something especially the older school consultants really like um, and then in the history i would just you know, move quickly and swiftly on. Any, I'd ask, you might want to say in the interview, I'd ask for symptoms of heart failure and ask about their exercise tolerance and get an idea for their general day-to-day -day life. And then specifically ask about um, risk factors on the on the CHADS VAS score and on the, uh, and think about their bleeding risk um, by asking about uh, previous bleeds and any other factors from the orbit score. And then also talk, think about any reversible risk factors. So specifically about reversible risk factors, the presence of obesity uh, and OSA. Uh, and then finally, you just talk about the, the triggers that were all mentioned um, in your both your history and your examination, so thyroid and uh, things like that. But yeah, you won't get too long in your, in your history to go through these things. Uh, so really, really whiz through the absolute pearls. Um, and with AF, you cannot forget, as Rahul said, stroke risk and bleeding risk. It's, you'd be a poor candidate for not mentioning that you're assessed them in history. Yeah, so yeah, that, I agree. That, that's a must. And uh, trying to just mention that you're thinking about uh, modifiable risk factors, I think is a, a real kind of discriminating point, yeah. showing that you're thinking slightly more in depth about uh, holistically managing the atrial fibrillation. Yeah, and actually that's something I think most, patient, most candidates do tend to forget. And mm. people are incredibly hot in it right now. It's incredibly popular thinking about uh, modifiable risk factors, so at least knowing that you have to think about them. Yeah, I agree. Okay, uh, so then moving on to diagnosis. So as we mentioned, um, it is typically diagnosed on a 12-lead ECG. Um, however, if you suspect paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, i.e. it's not present at the time um, of assessing the patient, 
you use a device to try and capture uh, the atrial fibrillation. And that's really guided by the symptom frequency. So this can uh, range from uh, performing a halter monitor, which is typically a three lead monitor, um, going from one day up to seven days. Uh, one can then um, escalate that to something like an implantable loop recorder, uh, which can stay in for as long as the battery lasts. Um, they can, uh, in this day and age, there are also uh, newer technologies such as wearable devices, such as an Apple Watch, typically a one lead ECG, or uh, the Cardia Mobile um, app, which is a kind of more newer uh, addition and a newer technology. Um, and so really the emphasis is on when is the, uh, how often, how frequent are the patient's symptoms and then matching the appropriate uh, device to capture the symptoms related to that. One would also perform blood tests to look for uh, potential uh, stresses or causes of the atrial fibrillation. Uh, and this would include a panel of a full blood count, looking for uh, things like anemia, kidney function, um, uh, electrolytes, including calcium and magnesium, and also a thyroid function testing. Following on from that, you want to perform a transthoracic echo, really to assess the substrate of AF, thinking about those four S's. And in particular, you'd be looking at the left atrium and, and specific uh, predictors of uh, atrial fibrillation um, burden and also stroke risk include left atrial dilatation, uh, spontaneous contrast seen on the left atrium, suggesting of a low flow, a low flow state, uh, reduced left atrial strain, uh, low peak velocity on a Doppler flow uh, in the left atrium. Um, moving away from the left atrium, it'd also be important to assess the left ventricle and also any other potential uh, cardiac uh, pathologies such as valvular diseases, um, which may be um, uh, contributing to causing the atrial fibrillation. Um, they are the basic uh, uh, investigations that one uh, would do. Uh, and then there are also specific investigations uh, to consider. So we talked about ambulatory ECG monitoring uh, to, to diagnose paroxysmal AF, but it can also be used in other contexts. So um, in established atrial fibrillation, uh, it can be used to assess the adequacy of rate control, if that is the strategy of management, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and it will also, it can also be used uh, to relate symptoms people experience uh, to runs of fast AF to help determine actually if they're related because people may be um, reporting symptoms that aren't related to atrial fibrillation. Uh, a further specific test uh, that may be indicated is a, is a transesophageal echo. Um, and that can be done to further evaluate valves, but also uh, in the context of a rhythm control strategy, it can be used to look for a left atrial uh, uh, appendage thrombus. Um, and finally, um, when clinically indicated, it may be uh, necessary to uh, perform investigations of the coronary arteries, uh, where the ischemic heart disease is a particularly important risk factor for atrial fibrillation. Um, Barrick, any anything further to add in terms of investigations for AF? Um, no, I really like your point on the frequency of their symptoms guiding the choice of your uh, your arrhythmia monitoring. If someone's having, we were talking about this earlier, obviously, so if someone's having symptoms once every fortnight or so, fairly low yield to do a 24-hour halter. And if your 24-hour halter is negative and the patient didn't get any symptoms in their 24 hours, it's just 
a, a bit of a waste of time, to be honest. It doesn't tell you too much. Um, so you really have to think about matching your arrhythmia monitoring to the frequency of their symptoms. I think that's one key thing. Um, and with, an, with, that, with that knowledge, um, I think you, you can obviously talk to, I think with that knowledge and the fact that some of the newer devices of so the Cardia app um, and the Apple Watch coming to the fore, I think that's very useful for those patients that can use them, which more and more is most of our patients. Um, and just in case people don't know, because sometimes people don't appreciate it, I thought I'd just, I've just made a slide or two on what these things are. So the first slide here, uh, can you see that screen okay? Yep. Um, so I thought we'd just, we were talking about investigation and 12 lead ECG. So on a 12 lead ECG, this is, I think we can appreciate, irregularly irregular RR interval. Um, and this is something you could quite happily and quite easily get in an interview. Um, and there's no, whilst you might see a bit of a baseline here, there's no definitive uh, P wave activity. So you could look at V1, which is quite a good place to look at uh, V waves. And you, know, you can't, there are some notches here, but you can't say definitively that there's a clear, clearly defined regular PR interval. And the fact that it's irregular means that well, the other options would be complete heart block, which it's not because it's irregular QRS complexes, or it could be Mobius type one, which it clearly isn't because you don't have that pattern of it elongating in a drop beat. Uh, so this is by definition AF. Uh, and there aren't many things in the interview that if you get wrong, you're scuppered, but uh, without wanting to sound too drastic, you don't get the AF diagnosis of an ECG it can be very difficult to rescue that clinical station. So do, do, do um, practice your ECG interpretation. And this they won't show you, but just for interest's sake. So a transthoracic echo doesn't really give you good images of the left atrial appendage, which is where over 95% of the clots form um, in AF. So when we say we don't think a patient's been fully anticoagulated, therefore we need to rule out a thrombus before we cardiovert them, this is what you do. You do a transthoracic echo, a transesophageal echo, which gives you a really nice picture of the left atrium, which is this. And this is the left atrium, uh, left atrial appendage, which is an outpouching. And this is where clots form. And you can see here a really nasty looking thrombus. So this is a patient that if you cardiovert them, cardioverted them, that thrombus could quite easily um, fly off and enter the uh, cerebral circulation and cause a stroke. And this here is a similar larger atrium, so more dilated. And you can hear, here you can see uh, SEC means spontaneous echo contrast. And what that means is that it's just generally very slow flow. And if you think back to Verkos triad, slow flow is one of the things that causes clots. Um, and so this is pre-clot formation, but it's very suspicious for uh, there being a thrombus in here. So it definitely means you'd have to look at this thrombus in further detail on your uh, TOE to make sure there's definitely no clot before you cardioverted them. So, and as an aside, um, this appendage, uh, if we think this is where the majority of over 95% of clots can form, I think we'll all go on to speak, later, speak, on late, speak later, but how we can close off this appendage as one option for stroke control uh, in AF. Now, these images are definitely not what you need to know for your 
uh, interview. But uh, I think it, I think it is just uh, quite nice to know what you're what you're talking about as a cardiologist when you say, "Oh, we need to do a TOE to rule out a thrombus." That's what you're <laughs> trying to rule out. Um, but no, I don't have the answer to that. Thanks.